0: The healthcare system is hard enough to navigate without having chronic illness diagnoses to boot. Feeling all at sea and looking for direction, advice, and deeper understanding? From a medical specialty glossary to tips on talking to your health insurance providers, download your free copy of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. I've been working behind the scenes as a patient advisor with the team at Flowly, an NIH-backed mobile app for helping manage pain, anxiety, and sleep. When you subscribe, Flowly sends you a virtual reality headset and heart rate sensor and then collects your heart rate to convert it into beautiful visualizations in VR to help relax your nervous system. This app comes with an impressive pedigree, having been developed by top doctors at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and USC. I've seen how their members have experienced life-changing impact like sleeping through the night for the first time in 15 years, feeling in control of their anxiety, and managing their pain. Right now, the team at Flowly are offering three months at 15% off on either their monthly or annual plans. Go to flowly2.page.link uninvisible. That's F-L-O-W-L-Y, the number 2, dot, page dot link slash uninvisible to claim your discount and check out the app. It's so worth it, and there's even a vibrant community you can join as part of your membership. Go get it now! A trigger warning that this episode includes discussion of mortality as well as some more graphic descriptions of what happened during and in the aftermath of the events of September 11th, 2001. This episode is dedicated to those we lost that day, as well as to those who, like our guest, sacrificed their own safety in rescue and recovery efforts. Always look for the helpers. And a special shout-out to the 13th Precinct on 21st Street in New York City. May we never forget. All right, everyone, thank you so much for joining me. I am here today with Tom Fry. Tom is a retired NYPD detective and first responder who has survived cancer and is now living with pulmonary fibrosis as a result of life-saving work performed at Ground Zero on September 11th, 2001. We are approaching the 20th anniversary, so we are incredibly honored to have you here on the show today. Tom, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Lauren.
0: Oh, it's, it's truly an honor. And to get things started, I wondered if you could tell us a bit about yourself. I know you and I have already chatted about our memories of New York, but if you could talk to us about the diagnoses you live with or have survived up to this point uh, to fill our listeners in, that would be wonderful.
1: Sure. Well, it's this, uh, I guess my journey began uh, in 2016. Uh, Well, Went into my doctor's office and uh, regular checkup. And I would get one every six months or so. They take blood. And the next day I got the, Dr. Kumar would like to see you right away in his office. And I said, oh, Dr. Kumar wants to, help. that's not good. And I asked the nurse, I said, well, what does he want? And she goes, I'm not sure. They don't tell me those things. I said, I'll be there in 10 minutes. (laughs) So I ran over there. And uh, he went over the results of the uh, blood work and he said, I'm looking at this. Your blood counts are off the charts and it appears that you have cancer. I said, Cancer? And so it's like somebody just kicked you in the stomach. Of course. And what kind of cancer? We don't know yet. We're going to have to do some tests and CAT scan. So I did all the CAT CT scan and biopsy. And I ended up having Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a, uh, it's a blood cancer type. And, uh, that's where the journey began. So took that in. I had to do 12 rounds of chemotherapy. Wow. So yeah, it was pretty strong, uh, chemo. And, uh, I mean, they had names. They had all these bags, different times and, One, they had to seal from the light. One was called the red devil. And it was actually like pure red, whatever it was. Wow. You know, so it was pretty, pretty strong stuff to be dealing with. So I started the chemotherapy. And uh, at that point, I was getting in real bad shape. I was sweating. Uh, I was just losing weight. I had lost like 60 pounds over a short period of time. So I was like uh, really going down pretty fast. Chemo got me in after the second one, it really started working. And going through cancer, is a the chemo is pretty tough to deal with. Uh, I had a good medical team. I found a doctor I really liked. And I went with Dr. Wong and we had a great relationship. And we said, Tom, if you ever feel anything off anything, if you see a mark, a bump, a bruise, a Anything, I want to know about it. The, the man gave me, I mean, no doctor has ever done this before. He gave me his personal cell phone number. Wow. And I, I only used it once or twice. And uh, it was when I was in really bad shape. But he picked up the phone nine o'clock in his house. Uh, but after the ninth chemotherapy round, uh, I got like a little shortness of breath. And I really didn't think of it, just like I couldn't catch my breath for a minute. I really didn't think much about it. But I I said to myself, you know, he said, tell him whatever goes on, goes on. So I told him, Doc, I have shortness of breath. I couldn't catch my breath. He said, whoops, okay, you're going right into a pulmonologist tomorrow. Sets me right up. And pulmonologist does some tests. I get a result back from the pulmonologist. And he tells me you have pulmonary fibrosis. Your lungs have been poisoned.
0: And you're um, probably going. What on earth is that?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I go, is it cancer? And he goes no. So it, I heard it's not cancer. And I'm like, oh yippee! Yes. So yeah, I'm
0: going,
1: yeah. Oh great, it's not cancer. So so now he's speaking French to me. Uh, he's uh, he, I don't know what he's saying. He's about hardening in the lungs. It is that. And uh, he said there's nothing we could do for you. And I said, Well, uh, any medication? I thought he was going to give me, you know, add to my list of a dozen medications. Oh, no medications or anything. And he sent me home to die. Uh, he didn't give me much time. Uh, so, on top of the cancer, the, the chemotherapy, I now had this pulmonary fibrosis to deal with. And uh, it was actually caused by gliomycin. it was one of the. Uh, the cancer drugs. So, to, so this uh, was
0: a secondary, a secondary diagnosis as a result of the chemo. the treatment Right, for the exactly,
1: cancer. exactly. So it set off a fire in my lungs. And I guess with the toxins and everything else, this fire was set off by bleomycin. And one good thing that they do is that when, before you start your cancer treatments, they make a breathing test, they scan your lungs. So everything was scanned and I was 100% normal. My oxygen rates were normal, and they had to test to back it up, thank goodness, because down the line, when I had to go for World Trade Center, you know, uh, being disabled from it, all that helped. But it showed, perfect, and then the toxicity, and they said, basically, your lungs are on fire. This drug has caused your lungs to go on fire which causes the fibrosis, which cause pulmonary fibrosis.
0: And this is a lifelong condition too, yes?
1: It's terminal. It's, uh, it's chronic terminal. There's no cure for this. Uh, the only cure is a lung transplant, So, which you're not eligible. For, no hospital really will touch you until five years after your last chemotherapy uh, injection then they'll start considering you for a transplant.
0: So you would but, be up um, for transplant consideration quite soon.
1: Yeah. and Well, yeah, I could, we go off the subject, but I had two doctors I had met through a uh, pulmonary fibrosis foundation. It was a uh, Broadway belts. It's one of their fundraisers. And uh, I did a, engagement there, and I met two transplant doctors, two wonderful ladies, and they came up to me, and they said, we want to give you a lung transplant, and I said, I love you ladies, please, doctors, let's do it, (laughs) and right before COVID, right during COVID, it broke out, COVID broke out, New York was shut down, shutting down, and everything got put off onto the back burner, but... But uh going back starting with the pulmonary fibrosis, wow, it was it was I couldn't walk on the I would be coughing on my knees, coughing. And uh it was horrible, you know, I had to get on oxygen and steroids and antibiotics and once your heart goes, your lungs go. So uh, once your lungs go, your heart goes. And, you know, it's just a big, you know, round and round we go. And, uh, you know, I had to start finding it. And then you look and you, what do you do today? You go to Google. So you go to the computer, you go to Google. Two to five years, two to five years, three to five years. Nobody lives past five years. And I'm going, oh, crap. I said, wow, everything on this computer says I'm going to live two to five years. That doctor didn't give me a year. Uh, basically, he told me, you know, get ready to, you know, you're, you're traveling beyond, you know? So, and, and I was tired at that point. And this is a very tiring disease, but between the cancer, the chemo, pulmonary fibrosis, it was like, oh, So, like I was just in the ring with uh, Mike Tyson and thrown out, you know? So, yeah. so, so that's where I was at. And then I found, luckily, One of the things out there was the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation. And they hooked me up with a support group. We have a local uh, support group here, which I now, I run the local support group. You know how I run it. But he died before me, so I'm the last man standing, so I now run it. I was trying to find a place to go for pulmonary rehabilitation. And and the man, his name was Dennis Linhart, he was the founder of our organization, and that's in Melbourne, Florida. And he said, You come here. And he took me down the hall where where the meeting was. It was in Rockledge Hospital. And he brings me down the hall. And here is the Rockledge Hospital Pulmonary Rehabilitation Center, Pulmonary Rehab. They had me signed up in two days. I was doing pulmonary rehab. But there were people that were open arms willing to help me oxygen i mean this is a this is a whole new world you know wearing an oxygen had it oxygen is a whole once you go on oxygen it's a whole new world so uh i started off with the big metal tanks so i uh, i would go into a 7-eleven i ripped an entire display case down because this this thing here caught on to the clip of the uh, like uh. the candy stuff as I was paying, and then I go like this, and the whole thing ripened. and I thought, "Oh my god!" And and you know they felt bad for me because at that time I you could see the effects of the chemo, and I was on oxygen. I probably looked like I, I escaped from uh, you know uh, an insane asylum. Mm. <laughs> so. <laughs> So no, it was really a journey. It was really yeah. a journey. Uh, so, so that's that's where it all began. So, yeah.
0: Well, and it's and it's still unfolding, right? You know, with with COVID uh, every right day now. Something- yeah. Right. You know, we're in the middle of this Delta outbreak, which I'm sure has also added complications to Absolutely. the progress for hopefully your upcoming transplant. But you know, this is something we want to, we'll want to follow up with you on and, and find out when cool. and if this happens, because man, are we in your corner? And I, I wanted to also ask as well, because you mentioned, you know, World Trade Center and and cancer. So to be clear with everyone who's tuning in, you most likely contracted Hodgkin's lymphoma, right, because of your work on the ground, on 9-11. So when you were working at Ground Zero, did you know that the health consequences you'd, you'd pay what they were and, and that your life would be changed irrevocably by these events 20 Orin, years ago?
1: I, I did and I didn't, Lauren. Uh, yeah. You know, we responded down to the World Trade Center. Uh, it was like a nuclear blast. I mean, you know, it is what it is. It was two of the largest buildings in the world in a pile. Uh, started out doing the Bucket Brigade and seeing if we could help or rescue or save anybody. And, uh, you know, it's still, I, I, I remember going on the night in 9-11 and you could hear the firemen have alarms with them. And they're like, basically like that. And I could hear them. And there was nothing there, and and we were digging with buckets, and all of a sudden you'd hear whistles blow with these whistles or horns, and that meant you had to get out because engineers saw other buildings were going to fall on top of you. Uh, you know there was this white gray ash that was everywhere, and we didn't have the proper equipment. There was, nobody was expecting. You know, on September 11th of that year, that two of the largest buildings would be hit by plane terrorists, attacked by planes, come crashing down. So, you you know, there you were. So, So, that's, that's, we also, it just wasn't one day. We were there for months and months and dealing with it for years, like dealing with deaths that were coming in from the medical examiner's office from dna you know mm. notification so you know stuff like that takes a mental toll on you so it's not just 9 11 it was 9 12 9 13 10 13 you know one you know it just keeps going and going um but it was toxic it was a it was toxic uh, you know they took all the building and they took it and they took it out to staten island there's a landfill the great kills landfill so they took everything out there, and they had big sifting machines. So what we would do is go through. They would have us in a hazmat suit. We'd start going through. Now, everything was a learning experience. So so they'd give us these hazmat suits. we go out there. We'd start digging through it, uh, putting the stuff in the machine. It would filter it out. And you would find things, remains, and I found the plane window, an actual airplane window, and it was fully intact. It was just that one window that,
0: it's like on every airplane,
1: I go, God, who, how did this end up here, you know, in this pile? And who was looking out of that airplane window? But anyway, you know, you took it and the FBI, they, you know, you go to the boss, I have a piece of the airplane, bring it to the FBI trailer, so off to the FBI trail we would go and spent lots of time there and we got fed by the Red Cross had food trucks uh I think it's a Red Cross and they had like picnic tables and a tent set up so so you know it may be five, one thousand feet away from where we're doing all the sifting we take off to the top of the hazmat suit and we're eating, and and the white dust was out there, and the wind blows, and the white dust would be on your food, so you're ingesting it, you're you're eating it, you're breathing it, you're and and it pretty much it, it took a lot of people out that, that toxic dust. It took a lot of people out, and in my group, I was so many people I know got sick and died, and uh, I thought I was kind of immune. To uh, I thought I had probably had made it at that point. You know, boy, it's 2016, and uh, nothing's happened. I guess I'm the lucky one uh, gone. And boy, was I wrong. So mm.
0: um,
1: so that's basically where that stood.
0: If it happened again tomorrow, would you do anything differently?
1: I, I would absolutely do it away. It's just in my blood. Uh, it's in my blood. I, I would run and help if... If I see a car accident on the side, I'm going to get out and try to help get somebody out of it. That's just that's just me, and, and yeah, I would do it again. So I would do it again. But I was no hero. I'm absolutely I'm not a hero. The firemen that went in the building and all that stuff, and with their equipment going up, and anybody who was doing that, those are the heroes that aren't here with us. today.
0: So. well i'm I'm here to tell you you're one of them oh, uh, <laughs> absolutely in my mind you are I can't help but um get pretty emotional you know hearing about this it's uh it's something that has changed all of our lives you know in absolutely. so many ways and to know that that you are risking yours um you know to find survivors to find people is um that's what it means to look for the helpers. You know, Mr. Rogers taught us to look for the helpers. And and when the world is as it is now, you know, mm-hmm. um, the way it has devolved in the last 20 years, especially, you know, it is uh, incredible to hear about someone like you just acting out of instinct for the good. And I cannot thank you enough.
1: Before right. Well, work. well, you know, you you lived in New York City, right across, right around the corner from where I worked. If you ever go, that was a building I left to go down to nine eleven that day. I was actually inside of that building, percent. outside of, in the thirteenth precinct I worked up on C day. And uh, if you ever walk by, take a look at the plaques outside. There were a lot of people that left that day that were friends of mine that are no longer with us.
0: Uh, I'm wondering as well. You know. With making it through these the fifteen years before you got sick, and as you mentioned that the mental health toll of the trauma of sifting through these sifting machines, finding plane windows and human remains, was mental health care ever offered to you as someone who was a first responder?
1: Yes, you had to seek it out though. so you had to seek it out. and i I am diagnosed with PTSD. And, uh, so I did seek it out and I got help up to the pandemic. So, and then the person I was seeing for the PTSD, they have to be approved by the World Trade Center, LHI, which is United Healthcare, which is a whole nother mess, but, but they had to be approved and the person went online and, and he just disappeared. So with that, I want my uh, treatment for the PTSD, but I have to start looking into that again. So uh, but it was offered, it is offered, and uh, you know, I always recommend people to take advantage of it, not just for 9/11, but if you have pulmonary fibrosis or another chronic disease uh, or a terminal disease that you're living with, you have to talk to people about it. You can't just sit on the couch and uh, have a pity party because yeah. it's not going to work. So,
0: What does it mean for you to be facing your mortality in this way, too? I mean, obviously, there are solutions, right? Sure. When you first Googled pulmonary fibrosis and saw that you had this life expectancy that was greatly reduced, I mean, how was that emotionally to go through especially having been neglected by your pulmonologist like that
1: right uh well then i found a great pulmonologist and then through the pulmonary fibrosis foundation because when i started going to the meetings hey go to this pulmonologist get out of here you know but but it was wow you're dealing with cancer the chemo the pulmonary fibrosis. Now that's a terminal disease. And you're still, you're getting scanned and x-rayed and, and you're like, Oh God. I mean, it's like they took you, took me to death. And like right, right about when they get you there, they bring you back. That's when it all, you you know, so it was, when you tell me I have a year to live and you're a doctor, I kind of believe you that I have a year to live. So, I'll, I'll tell you what, after my chemo, some friends and my brother, we had a party. They did, a, they did something special for me. I like going on cruise ships. So we did a cruise out of Port Canaveral, Florida, to the Bahamas. And, uh, you know, it was the celebration and no more chemo. And I really shouldn't have gone. Uh, although it was because of the pulmonary fibrosis, I shouldn't have gone. And but I couldn't say no because you, you know and uh, boy I didn't think I would lived long after that cruise I, I really didn't I had to have a friend of mine walk me somebody was blowing smoke and turned around blew smoke at me and I all of a sudden it went like into the oxygen you know the tube yeah. and I got nauseous and I got dizzy and. I had to get back to the room and lay down. A friend of mine took me. I didn't think I was going to be around much longer. And for the first months, I sat around like I was going to die. I was going to die. So, you know what I did? Do I want a funeral? Do I want a cremation or a burial? You know, so I, I purchased a cremation plan. I mean, these are the things you have to do. I, I went to the lawyer and I had to get... uh you know uh trust for and you know this was reality so now i'm making uh, you, you know i'm making my plans to move on i mean i purchased a uh, cremation plan but this is the reality of it and i started sitting there waiting to die and when you're waiting to die and you're not dying but what the hell am i doing let me go outside and start to live again but it took a while. I started going to pulmonary rehabilitation, getting involved with the pulmonary fibrosis foundation, uh, going to support meetings, talking to these people and, and finding people on the Internet that had the same disease. So I would latch on. There are certain people like with all terminal conditions, you find that guy that's living for 18 years or 15 years or that lady that's living wow. for 17 years. I said, well, what the hell are they doing? How are they here for 18 years? And everybody else is dying with five. I want to know what this guy with 18 years is doing. So that's what I latched on to. And uh, my magical answer is I have to keep moving. <laughs> if I stop moving, uh, I'm done. So I cannot stop moving. I ended up getting a dog three years ago. He's now my service dog. I call him Mr. Peanut. And he was in worse shape than I was. He was in a house with 85 other dogs in South Florida. And he was a little Jack Russell. And he looked like he went through hell. So I said, you know, I want that dog. Because he's been through hell. I'm going through hell. And he probably doesn't have much more time than I do. So we're both still here. You you know, he had a cancer and they took it out. And they had to take five teeth out of him. And he is, he keeps me busy. So Mr. Peanut, but that (laughs) is, that's my path. So, but I have to get up. I have to walk him three times a day. I bring him to a dog park here. And I have a whole group of friends. And and the group is from 20 20 years old to 88 years old. Wow, Our group of people in our circle in the dog park. And and it's great. And and this is my new life. And if you told me 10 years ago that I would be sitting in a group, in a circle, in a dog park in Melbourne, Florida, uh, you know, talking to all these different people, all walks of life. And it's great. And we go out to dinner once in a while and have birthday parties for people every once in a while. And that's great. And that's, that's living. You got to get out. Do not feel sorry for yourself. Get out, do something. The dog for me was, and and he is service dog. So with my machine, if I get dizzy, if I get too much oxygen, too little, he is for stability and balance. A little guy is, he's 22 pounds and he's strong like a bull and he'll get me out it's amazing but uh you know that's one of the things that keeps me going
0: it's yeah it's interesting yeah yeah.
1: oh go ahead go ahead i keep i haven't let you speak a word i'm sorry
0: no not this is about you tom i want to hear all about it
1: i'm just trying to tell you about my disease so so now one of the worst things that happened to me when i first got this disease i used to go shopping and like I couldn't go regular times. Number one, I didn't want to be around people because of the germs and my immune system was so weak. So I would go to Walmart at like 11 o'clock at night. i Target at like 10 o'clock at night. And at one point, I had to use those chairs. And I, I was like, oh, God, I hope nobody sees me. And I'm in the chair and it's you like, and somebody goes, Tom, it's a friend of mine, and his wife, they didn't know I was sick. And I said, "Oh crap!" I, I, once again, I probably look like I escaped from an asylum somewhere. Uh, When I tell you the cancer, the chemo, and the pulmonary fibrosis, I was like shot out of a circus cannon, and I was a mess. And after that, I said, "I will." I, I got rid of that chair. I said, "I will not use that damn chair again." So I started walking, and I would go into be it Publix or Walmart or Target or whatever, Home Depot, and I get the shopping cart. And I put my shopping cart in there. I have Mr. Peanut now on my left hand. And me and Mr. Peanut, we go walking through. And we do a mile, sometimes mile and a half. We just walk around and walk around. And and now, you know, I can make it. I don't need the chair anymore. But I, pri- I felt so humiliated being in that chair. I can't even describe it. It was just so humiliating. But uh, those are things that, you know, when you get sick, you know, these are the things you have to deal with. So.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so interesting. So many things come up for me as you're, you're talking about really what your day to day is looking like, you know, with managing pulmonary fibrosis and you have leaned so much on community and on your own resilience, um, which obviously you've also cultivated through this relationship with Mr. Peanut, which it's interesting <laughs> because this comes up pretty often on the show when, when I ask people, which I will ask you later on, you know, um, like what, what they recommend for other people who are living with chronic conditions, often adopting a pet comes up and leaning on your community comes up. And these are exact things that you're doing. And the fact that you've been able to train Mr. Peanut as a service dog. I mean, these are all really you're, you're living this sort of textbook, perfect chronic illness life from my perspective, right? You know, you're doing all the things instinctively that so many of us really struggle to get our heads around and, and, I think that's so important for people to understand, too, that, like, if if this is instinctive, it's probably because it's a good thing as well. Right. And it's clearly helped you reconnect with community and, you know, come back to yourself.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, once again, I just keep moving. I, I, I got a part time job at Florida Institute of Technology here, and it was a beautiful, nice part time job. They knew I was sick. Once you have this disease, I can't tell you that I'm going to be here five days a week, uh, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. It's just impossible for that to happen because you have good days, you have bad days. Life is like a roller coaster. And when my – you have to – I have to listen to my body. When my body says, Tom, you're tired, you're tired. It's time for a day or two off knock it off, you're not going to go on a cruise, you're not going to go and people, I, I used to in the beginning I would get in the car and drive to New York I've gotten in the car and I've drive to New Orleans and uh, you know, I don't do that now, now I, I just with all this, you know COVID and all that stuff but but I just have to keep moving I, you know, the job was great and then COVID broke out and the students at the college started getting, we had international students and they had a big COVID outbreak. And I just had to say, hey, time out. One of the things I had to do was give the students dorm keys and things like that. And, and I said, I have to take a, take a time out from this, even though it gave me something to do. It gives me something to look forward to. One, another one of the things I always like to do is I always have a trip planned it's. I was going to go, but but having a trip or something planned gives me something to look forward to next month. Absolutely. So that way, I can't die or go into the hospital. I have to keep strong because, like next month, I was going to go to Alaska on a cruise. But
0: that's my dream cruise. It was. <laughs> Don't go without my, me, Tom. <laughs> I have
1: my bucket list. I have my bucket list, it. And that's on my bucket list. Yeah. And I just canceled it though, because I can't take a chance with the COVID right now. No. Uh, it's just too much. Uh, COVID to me, a cold, a sneeze could put me into the emergency room, into a hospital. If I go near a hospital, they put a net on me and I'm admitted for a week. It's just that's that's the way it is. So because okay. once this starts at pneumonia and and don't want it. So
0: I really want people tuning into this episode to, to hear that and to understand that because so many of our listeners like you are considered high risk. And, um, you know, there's all this talk throughout this pandemic of, Oh, well, I just want to get COVID and have it over with. And people who are going out without masks and, you know, all these issues about vaccines and masks. And, but you are one of these people that like, you need people to wear masks so that you don't get sick, you know, and this is, you know, I really hope that, that, Perhaps those who are um, a little bit less uh, in tune with some of these protective measures um, around COVID hear this episode as well, because to understand that, like, if you wear a mask today, you're helping people like Tom, who helped people after a terrorist attack in New York City 20 years. I mean, this is Tom is the person that you should be wearing a mask for.
1: I, it's And it's true. And I'll tell you, I used to, wear, I was wearing masks before the masks were fashionable. So years before COVID, <laughs> I was wearing the mask. You should have seen the stares I used to get when going to the airport thing. They would yes. look like I was a monster. And Same. <laughs> people could be so cruel. People yeah. could be really cruel. Nothing really bothers me, but... I could see some people, and uh, I have pretty thick skin. If you didn't have that, I could see people being bothered by it, but people could yeah. be real cruel. But, but yeah, the mask, if somebody sneezes and it gets in, I'm cooked. <laughs> so, yeah. so I have to be careful, too. It's I can't go to large crowds anymore now with all this stuff. And, That's
0: you know, actually would... been really hard, too, like for the last year and a half, being quite isolated, I imagine.
1: Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. And once again, I, it's going out. I go out like an hour before the Walmart closes or, you know, I don't shop at 10 o'clock at uh, the supermarket when they whatever, just can't really do it because there's just too much people around. And, you know, I'm very careful. I was careful before COVID too. If I would get a hotel room, I go in with the, the hand, the, not the hand, the spray, the Lysol spray, and wipe everything down because i've been in the hospital with lung issues probably since diagnosed five or six times and once you're in a hospital once you're in there the first thing you want to do is get out of there because it become like a jail cell but uh but that's another thing aren't the the medical care workers that get so little praise uh, the nurses the doctors the the people who bring the food to you, clean the room, the medical assistants, God bless them all, you know, because, wow, they are heroes for us with these illnesses and pulmonary fibrosis. And, you know, I appreciate them. I appreciate them all. I just say they're the best. They're the you best. watch out.
0: I'm going to call this this episode the definition of heroism. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, well, truly they, they really are amazing.
1: Yeah, they should. They're, they're the heroes. They're the heroes for me. For me, I mean, you know, I walk into the Moffitt Cancer Center, which is where I go for my scans. I was there for a scan last week. And they just, everybody just switches so nicely and friendly. and Everybody does their job. And thanks for coming. We're going to call you with the results. We'll see you soon. You know, what people, what great people. I imagine what they go through, they should need. Imagine being a doctor in a cancer center. I used to sit there. I've asked my doctor, the oncologist, Dr. Moore. They said, how do you do this every day? I mean, how do you, that, that room with the, you know, everybody going through the chemotherapy, that room was packed every time. How does he deal with it? You're dealing with all these people every day. There's no shortage. And just, I, I wouldn't be able to do it, but thank God there are people that are, so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, just like there were people like you who were there on the ground to save people 20 years ago, too. It's the same thing. It's this, you look for the helpers. There are some people who, who feel it's a calling to to be there for other people, and that, is truly what community is about and what care is about. I'm wondering as well, you know, with these diagnoses that you have, you know, are living with and have lived through, you know, the cancer itself, especially aside from how it ravaged your body during treatment Mm
1: -hmm. is
0: largely invisible. And I'm wondering whether within the healthcare system or among friends, family, or colleagues, you ever encountered anyone who didn't understand your diagnoses because they just couldn't see them or even now with your oxygen, you know, that like someone didn't understand it. I mean, it's very much like these COVID this COVID discussion, I guess, but, you know, have there been people who sort of, you had to justify things to?
1: Well, you know what people understand the cancer, the cancer, when you tell people I have cancer, it's like, you know, so people understand that the pulmonary fibrosis part, which is worse than the cancer. People don't understand. They go, are you cancer-free? Yeah, I'm cancer-free, but the pulmonary fibrosis. Oh, it's great. You're cancer-free. Yeah, but that pulmonary fibrosis is the one that's killing me now. So, you know, uh, I would probably, if I could get the cancer back and train it for pulmonary fibrosis, I'd take the cancer back. But we can't wow. play uh let's make a deal. But, right. you know, that is... People don't understand the pulmonary fibrosis part of it. So, so it's just, it's a hardening in the lungs. That gliomyosin got into my system, and it attacked my chest area, and it hardened my lungs. And my body goes to repair it, and it makes the lungs harder. And that makes me have use the oxygen harder. So basically, my lungs are dying. So people have to stand, you know, my lungs are dying. So they're, they're going to give up. And thank God mine have not given up. Uh, I recently, I was doing great. And then I went to my pul- pulmonologist a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, just doctors, getting going to doctors, like I have three, four, five doctors appointments a month. And I went for this one and I had to take a breathing test. And once again, hey, Tom, you just lost 10% of your lung function since the last time you were here. So now you go, oh, crap, here we go. And you go, I was feeling good. What is it? So we're going to have to send you for a scan. So I went to the Moffitt Center, and I got a scan. And uh, it appeared, you know, some lymph nodes were enlarged, but nothing really, they weren't concerned about anything. But something caused it. So now they're trying to figure out what caused that 10% drop, but it looked like my fibrosis was stable, but they did find a couple of lymph nodes that were something maybe going on. So, but that's just stuff you deal with. Right yeah. here.
0: You're incredibly resilient, you know, just hearing you talk about this. You, it sounds like you've gone through a, a really big acceptance journey too. You know I, I had to yeah,
1: yeah I had to yeah yeah it took a while. I used to uh, the, the first meetings I went to were at the pulmonary fibrosis meetings. They were it, it's called better breathers. Uh, they have these better breathers meetings and it's for people with uh, COPD and stuff like that and very nice people, but I went there this is an apple and an orange, an elephant and a squirrel, you know, comparing COPD with pulmonary fibrosis is absolutely nothing in common. And thank God, you know, after that, I found that pulmonary fibrosis meeting. And, uh, you know, that's really, once again, what got me started. So.
0: Well, let's talk a bit more about the, the advocacy work you're doing. Cause I mean, as someone who was clearly a helper, right? You were born to be a helper. You're now helping others through this support group. And it sounds like you got involved because it was helping you. So can you talk to us a little bit about what that looks like and, and sort of what initiatives you're working toward with the pulmonary fibrosis foundation?
1: Okay. Well, I do two things. I'm a, uh, ambassador. So as an ambassador, like I'm doing this talk with you, this is, I'm doing my part in getting the word out about pulmonary fibrosis, pulmonary fibrosis foundation. September is pulmonary fibrosis awareness month, as long as, as well as the 20 year anniversary of the World Trade Center 911. So, you know, I'm doing my apps. And so, so hopefully. Your listeners now will understand, hey, because when I got pulmonary fibrosis, I had no, absolutely no idea what pulmonary fibrosis was, nor did I care to know. But uh, but hopefully now you know a little bit about pulmonary fibrosis. And, uh, you know, if, if you need help living with pulmonary fibrosis, you're sitting out there and you have it now, I'm telling you you have to reach out pulmonary fibrosis foundation.org on facebook on instagram uh we have an online meeting my group now we don't we used to meet in person so now we meet via zoom so if you want to reach out uh you can reach out to the they'll give you my information i'll give you the zoom code if you need to go to an online zoom meeting uh my group here, we have online Zoom meetings. So if you That's want amazing. to talk about it, we have speakers and and all kinds of things for you to uh, to get yourself involved with. So to give you the hope,
0: I just love that so much of this journey for you has been turning it around to keep moving. Right? You know that that you have the had these diagnoses handed to you and turned around and gone well you've let yourself sit in it for a minute and feel the feelings. And then you get up and you do something and you're doing something for other people. And I think that's what I love so much about this chronic illness community too. You know, it's like there are so many helpers out here who who want to talk to people and, and participate in community and being able to do that through organizations like the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation, or, you know, hearing about stories through people like you, it, it opens those doors to healing in some ways too, doesn't it? Because it does. This is addressing some of the mental health aspect of having these these disorders.
1: Absolutely, we get people that come from the doctor's office three days early. Have been told they have this disease, and they're petrified. They're they're scared. They're if I tell you, or if you look and it says average life expectancy expectancy is two to five years, you're going to be scared. You're going to be your mind's going to be in left field. It's going to take a while to get you grounded. You know. And we try Just take a deep breath at two to five years. It's it's an average. It's uh, look, this lady here, she's been having it for nine years. He's had it for 8 he's got a single lung transplant. You know, I've been with this is going on five years. I've had pulmonary fibrosis. I was dead four years ago. Here I am, though. You know, and life isn't so bad. Life isn't so bad. So here I am. You, you know, that doctor said I was dead. Four years ago, I'd be dead, and I'm still here. I'm still here, and uh, I didn't plan on going anywhere, but, uh, you know, another re- this disease, every breath you take is a reminder that you have this disease, because every breath is, is work. It's I have to make sure the machine is charged and plugged in, or I have uh, the other machines are filled, and the nighttime machine is working, and... If you're going on a vacation or if you're going anywhere on a long trip, you got to make sure you have it. Because once I stop hearing that machine going, Shh, I'm in trouble, it's hitting the fan. Because yeah. if my oxygen level in my blood goes below 90%, I could have a heart attack, a stroke, I'll be out of here. So, so it's just a constant. This isn't just like any old... You know, you could get when I had cancer, I could get a break from it once in a while. You took the chemo. You'd have a few bad days before the other one. And, you know, I would forget that I had cancer for a little while with this disease. This it's every forgetting. breath, it, when you're on oxygen, every breath is an effort. It's something it's, you know, triggering you that, hey, I have a disease. I got to keep going at it. So. so
0: you really have to develop resilience or develop coping strategies to, to manage the mental health uh, repercussions of, of that constant reminder.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. So you have to talk about it. <clears throat> and it's good I talk about it to you. It's, uh, you know, it's great. Well, I'm <laughs> so. glad to
0: hear that. I want to swing back a little bit to 9-11 and, and ask you, because I know this is, you've mentioned it in, in passing so far in this conversation, but do you believe that adequate adequate care and recompense has been given to those who like you worked to save lives on that day, 20 years ago. Cause we know that, I mean, we lost 3000 people that day, but we've lost over 50,000 cents. Yes. And I wonder whether, you know, that is something, what, what you think about that?
1: Well, great, great question. Uh, for me, it was a long journey. So just because I worked at the World Trade Center didn't mean that my Hodgkin's lymphoma came from the World Trade Center. Uh, how do we know you were at the World Trade Center? That's what the police. First, I had to go in front of the medical board. I got sick. So I had to bring all these records in. Lots of people have cancer. And this is what's called a disability board. In the police department, it's called getting disability. Very, very hard to do. So the two things you can get is disability and World Trade Center medical that they'll cover some of your medical bills. Now, at this point, I don't have to tell you how expensive the medical world is. I was probably on the verge of going bankrupt. I was I was having surgeries and biopsies and scans, PET scans, this scan, that scan. And my insurance wasn't covering all this. So you know, an anesthesiologist comes and puts you under for a surgery. I was getting, you know, they cover whatever, and I'm getting bills for four or five thousand dollars. It's tremendous, and oh. I would open up the mailbox and just bills would fall out. You know, this doctor, that doctor. Right? And it was, it was, it gets overwhelming. So yeah. you know, I understand that part. So anyway, you have to get certified. So I had to go in front of three doctors. And there were 20 people in the room when I went for this disability hearing. And I went in front of three doctors. I thought they were going to call an ambulance. (laughs) Do you ever see the thing they put on your finger, the pulse oximeter? So from walking from, they walked me from the waiting room down to the, where the three doctors are that go over your records and speak to you. And they put the thing on my finger and I don't know what it read. But they started like almost doing medical treatments, and they don't do medical treatments at these hearings. I think they're getting ready to call an ambulance. (laughs) Wow. So, anyway, they're okay, catch your breath. I had to rent an oxygen machine uh, because I had to take a plane. So, that's another thing. You have to learn how to travel with oxygen. And, you know, they were adjusting the temperature to a higher level because. This was all French. I didn't know how to operate the machinery anyway. So that's done. And uh, they said the doctors will be back after lunch. Everybody could come back at two o'clock and they're going to give you results. Did you get your first approval for a disability? And I go up and the secretary, she goes, oh, only one person got the disability out of 20. I said, oh, yeah. She said, sorry, I guess. Uh well well you know who got it? Uh person last name of Frey. I'm Frey, <laughs> but everybody says Frey. Yeah. So oh boy, I'm lucky I got it, right? So wow. so now I was sick enough to be considered for this disability. And it wasn't the cancer, it was pulmonary fibrosis, the secondary that got me wow. into the disability. So then you have to meet in front of another board and it's a board of people from New York state, New York city union There's like 18 people on the board.
0: This is unbelievable to me how much certification you had to go through when there's clear proof that you were at ground zero on nine.
1: Oh, oh, wait, wait. So, so this gets better. Okay. You say you were at nine 11, show us, do you have all the time slips or memo book entries or this and that. And now I'm retired for, I said, No, I don't have that. I have people I work with. No, we don't want to take anybody else's word for it that you were there. We have to have documentation. I said, Well, you have all the overtime slips and and detail rosters and all this. Uh, What was a hurricane that devastated New York and flooded everything?
0: Oh, gosh. Yeah. What was the name of that hurricane? (laughs) I don't remember anymore. I know Ida's been the one recently wreaking havoc.
1: Well, whatever hurricane that was. And if you told me, I can't remember right now. They said that hurricane destroyed all our records. We can't find any documentation on that. Oh, my God. uh, So wait a second. I now my disability. There was a detective I had trained, as an officer, she came in, and I'll tell her name, Geneva L-U-T. God bless. I, I praise this lady here. Uh, she's married to a cop, a great guy, a great son who just joined the Marines. And Geneva, I hope you hear this, because Geneva, I called her up, and she worked in a unit I worked, and she was in Manhattan South Homicide. It was the same building in the 13th precinct. Geneva, I need a favor. I said I know it's a long shot, but is there any way you could go into the bowels, the basement of the 13th precinct, and try to find old records from this unit, and see if you could find any overtime slips or documents or memo books or you know command log entries? And two weeks later, I get a call. I found a box, and it has. Your command, wow. you were trained. You were posted to the, you know, this site, and to the Staten Island dump, and to the medical examiner office. And she gave me all this stuff. And the city, wow. I had to go back. I was granted the disability right away.
0: Wow! But, but what a long shot.
1: It was a million to one shot because you know some people he asked, "Hey, could you go into the basement or look at records from?" 14 years ago, can you see if you find anything? Yeah, if I get around to it, I'll look at it. She won, she did it, and she affected, thank God, uh, the rest of my life. But, you know, my medical benefits, uh, you, you know, my pension was changed, my medical benefits. I would have been. I would not have the quality of life I have today. Uh, yeah. And it was all because of her and, and, and doing that. And she found some other officers that were having... They were on the same detail rosters and stuff. And they were having a hard time. And some other people were saved by her finding those records. So, and then you (laughs) have to go, yeah, absolutely. And then you have to deal with the World Trade Center Health Fund. And at the beginning, they're good. But then it becomes, it's LHI, uh, Logistics Health, which is run by United Healthcare. And they take over the program. And it's just medications are supposed to cover. You go to CVS. Oh, not covered. Uh, try to call them. You can't get a person. It takes two or three hours to speak to a human being. Uh, you know, everything has to be certified. So I got certified for the cancer. Now I have the, uh, the pulmonary fibrosis. So they're going to cover my cancer now, but I'm already paying for all this chemotherapy and stuff because I'm still I'm I'm in the chemotherapy stage now. They didn't cover this for, you know, it takes like six months after diagnosis. So all those bills beforehand are on my, you know, I'm responsible for. But it, it was just they wouldn't cover the pulmonary fibrosis treatments then uh, because it wasn't certified. So I had to get that certified as a secondary condition to the cancer. So they make, it's like it's an insurance company run now. And they just put you through flaming hoops. Like if you have to call them, I dread having to call them for anything. Because they put you on phone and the MUSE Act. A doctor can't, doctor's offices can't get a hold of them. They call up and they get the same thing. And a doctor's office, they're hanging up after 10 minutes. So. Yeah. So that's something that's something I'm thinking about getting a hold of something to do some advocacy for that as well. So,
0: well, it really adds insult to injury, doesn't it? Because
1: it, it does. And one thing I'm not supposed to have is stress. So yeah. I'm, I'm Mr. Stress Reno. I I don't want stress in my life. I walk away from it, want nothing to do with it. But if I have to call that United Healthcare World Trade Center fund. As soon as I start dialing the number, my stress level goes to 100 because I know they don't want to they don't want to do it. They don't want to. They're running an insurance company, so they don't want to pay it or pay it as slow as possible, it appears to be. And
0: this is, I mean, not wanting to help people who have literally saved lives. To me, it's just like it's unconscionable.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's and, and. And, you know, when you go through chemotherapy, you get really sick and it's just lasting effects for years. And you get different stuff at different times. You'll get arthritis sometimes your teeth after going through after going through chemotherapy. All of a sudden my teeth start giving me a hard time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not the only one because I speak to other people who've been doing it and they're getting the same run around and stuff. But anyway, you just deal with it. But thank God. We have a fun. they' got John Stewart, uh, John Feel, uh, Feel Good Foundation. Those guys really want the bat for us and help the politicians to, uh, mm. to making sure they covered us medically. So yeah. thank God thank God.
0: Okay, guys, I want to talk about coaching. I recently connected with an awesome executive and life coach, and her name is Jenna Chieko a graduate of Dr. Martha Beck's program with a background in psychology and law. She's a former tech general counsel and chief of staff who also worked for the Obama administration. Jenna inspires clients to step into their best lives by helping them access their inner strengths, clear the cobwebs holding them back, and cultivate a dream big growth mindset. She is also a life Sherpa for navigating change. You know who I know who has big dreams and is navigating massive changes now more than ever with coronavirus? We Spoonies. Jenna works virtually, and she's offering 10% off to new clients who enroll and mention code INVISIBLE. Her rates are reasonable, and she's dedicated to help us rise to the top. Go to jennachieco.com, that's G-E-N-A-C-H-I-E-C-O.com for more. I'm wondering as well, because being an NYPD detective deter- during and after the events of 9 I imagine you got a lot of empathy and, and respect from the public. I mean, God, I bow down to you, you know, and in recent years, we've been waking up to a lot of the systemic problems of the policing system in this country, which themselves impact the health of communities and individuals. So how have you felt about the shift in public perception around policing as well, especially as someone who's been through what you've been through?
1: Well, I have been through different times where, you know, Ninety eight percent, ninety seven percent of all cops are policemen, are detectives, are are good people. And you have three percent. That. Aren't so good and, you you know, ninety seven percent of doctors are good, then you get three percent that aren't so good. But you turn the TV, and I understand you turn the TV on, somebody they go, Oh my God, what is going on? Uh, I mean, we lived through the Admiral Louima with the. Uh, do you remember that? I mean, it was disgusting. Yeah, I
0: remember it well. And
1: I, uh, I worked in a community where everybody knew me. I knew the whole community. Today.
0: It's got to be frustrating because you're someone it who. Is frustra-
1: it is frustrating. It is frustrating. And, you know, I've had experience with police too. uh, with not so good interactions, uh, you know, and, you know, it, it's training. I grew up in a community policing era. So when I was a young cop, I worked on the Upper West Side in uniform. I had a footpost from 86 to 90th Street, Central Park West to the east side of Broadway. And it was a diverse community. You had millionaires. We had Trixie from The Honeymooners who lived on Central Park West. Uh, we had an actor, the guy, Time to Make the Donuts for a Dunkin' Donuts. It might be before some people's age. He <laughs> no. We had no. basketball players living up there. And so you'd have millionaires and, and then you'd have public housing projects. And then, you know, so you had on um, one place Central Parks there and they were selling crack on 90th Street and Amsterdam Avenue. But they made, we had a community policing unit And it was a great unit, a great bunch of great, great crew we had. And one thing we had to do, we had to go to every school. We had to know every principal's name. Our sergeant would go in to make sure, Has Officer Fry been inside your school this week, I knew all the kids, they would come out, they would know my name. I would know every crack dealer. I would know every guy who broke into your car radio. I would stand in the street by the subways, people going to work every morning. Every business owner that owned a deli, a frame shop, a laundromat, a dry cleaner, a restaurant—I knew them by first name, and they knew me. I have kids. I had a kid last year. He reached out to me on Facebook. His name is Gerard. He lived in a, not 90th Street by Columbus to Amsterdam Avenue, and he was having a. He was a rough little kid, and he came up to me one time. He said, "Also, Safari, I want to change. Could you find me a job?" So I said, kid, I'm going to find you a job. So I walked around, and there was a love discount pharmacy. I don't know if you ever heard of them.
0: Yeah.
1: Loved them. Our, our Ricky's, it was Ricky's, a love pharmacy. And I knew the managers, get him a job, and he's stocking the shelves. He got him a job. And do you know the kid about a year ago, his wife got a hold of me. And it started with that. My husband's been looking for you. And he wanted to say, hello, thank you. And now we have a boy who's have a great take on the Fordham Prep. He's got a beautiful wife, a beautiful family. And I go back now. Now, that, that is better than hitting the lottery or anything else in the world. So that kid, that kid, I was able, I didn't even realize it, but I was able to change his life just by being a cop on that football team. And and we had a senior center and I would take little old ladies shopping. I had a police van and we'd load them up and we'd take them to Pathmark downtown <laughs> and they'd get their groceries and we'd get them back. And that way they wouldn't get robbed or fall down. And I used to have all these older senior ladies and were madly in love with me. But every Wednesday I would take them on a shopping trip. And that's what being a cop was about. Uh, you, you know, it's not all bad guys and all that. We were really... Social workers, I, I would stand out schools. We have Catholic schools, public schools. I would buy kids sneakers. I would buy them shirts. I bought old people dinners. They were trapped in the apartment. And you know, those big buildings in New York, behind every door is a story. And a lot of people don't know about those stories. But if you were a cop on that beat, you would know that, you know, Mrs. O'Leary, you know, bring you something to eat. And and, and you would do it, you know, just because it was your area. You knew the people. And and that's people were very, the bad people, not everybody likes police. So, yeah. And you could call me what I've ever been called every name in the book. So it didn't bother me if you didn't like me. But I wouldn't do anything to uh, hurt you or harm you because you didn't like me. You know, God bless you, you know. But it was a great job. It it was a it was a great job. And I think during the years I was able to do a lot of good, besides 9-11, which it, all I did was go to work. But, you know...
0: Well, all you did all these days was go to work. I mean, it yeah, sounds like this is the solution, though, isn't it? The solution, it is, which it, many people have been talking about, is to make policing more community-based.
1: It is, it is. The world has a lot of problems out there. So, yeah. you know, the police aren't, you know you know they're not the answer to everything although they they should never ever you know i never really put my hands on anybody unless they you know they wanted to resist arrest or something you know i treated i would buy if i arrested somebody i usually made friends with them at the end of Mm -hmm. the day i buy them lunch a cup of coffee get them a cigarette if they needed it back in the day or, and they'd be happy. You know, back in the day, it was a lot of crack addicts and they were doing, you know, stuff. I and mean, you actually felt sorry, you, it, you yeah. know, but it's a lot of mental illness and drug addiction. All these things have to be addressed. And a police officer is not going to be he's not the guy that. Is going to solve the drug abuse, probably you know, problem or the homelessness problem. Don't forget when you see the homeless out there, you're getting calls as a cop. You're getting calls from all the people that live there, from the business owners. They don't want them there, so now you're putting it put in the middle of the situation. You know, boy, this guy's homeless. He's living in a box on the corner. Do I get rid of him? You know, what do I do? And I'll tell you another one. We had a guy he was Dirty Dave. His name was Dirty Dave. He was a homeless guy on 89th Street and Broadway. Mm-hmm. He lived He lived in basically a box and he was filthy dirty. And he was not, about four years ago, three years ago, he had turned his life around about eight years ago. He became a New York City bus driver. Three years ago, all of a sudden, hey, Dirty Dave was bus driver of the year for New York City <laughs> Transit Authority. Wow. You know, Stuff like that is amazing. It's amazing.
0: Whether it's hiring practices or, or getting back to um, training or, uh, you know, focusing more on community, it's that, you know, we need to make that shift back to something that, that is more about community care really. Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. I,
1: I agree with that, but you know, it's, some of the cops could be more friendlier today too, but a lot of them are. Most of them are, but some of them are so standoffish. You know what I mean? It's like us and them. And, and if I ever get a chance to tell them, I always say, "Hey, relax, smile, be nice to people, say hello." You know, it's not us against them. It's we're all in this world together. If you could help them out, help them out. It's not all. It's not all police work. Believe me, is not all good guys and bad guys and cops and robbers. Yeah. It's a lot of, you know, you run across a lot of unfortunate people out there. Once again, a lot of addiction the put mm-hmm. the drugs are just destroying this. And country. a lot
0: of that has has to do with mental health too, right? You know, absolutely, like,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. And on the Upper West Side, when I first started out, it was, that's when they released all the mental patients from the, yeah, wherever, Creed mourns SROs, single room occupancy hotels on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So we would have some real people off the wall on drugs, and mm. and uh, we could go on forever. About yeah,
0: that. no, but but it's it's actually about reinstating some of those support services. It sounds like too, because if these people who have mental health issues had the right kind of support, they wouldn't then. I mean, in in many cases, I would imagine many of them wouldn't then also be going on the street and and accessing drugs or ending up homeless. You know, they would have support. It's just like you found support for pulmonary fibrosis. It's the same thing. It's about coming back to community. And and with that in mind, I, I wondered if if you could offer us some of your top tips. If you could crystallize your experience into your top three tips for someone who who maybe thinks that they have something off, or or maybe they're also living with pulmonary fibrosis or some kind of invisible or 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 even visible uh, chronic illness. What would you recommend? What would you offer as advice?
1: Get involved. Get involved. Look online, like for Pulmonary Fibrosis, pff.org, Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation. We have help for you. If you want a online support group meeting, you could come to my meeting. We have a meeting, and we're probably going to expand it, but uh, I have a, a Gmail, Gmail account. Email me, uh, toxicdust 911 at gmail.com. Send me your information. I'm going to send you a link because we don't like our meeting for that is pulmonary fibrosis foundation, uh pulmonary fibrosis patients. It's not for everybody. Uh So if you have asthma, I'd love to have you in there, but we are not an asthma support. We're, we're pulmonary fibrosis. So you email me. I will send you the code for our Zoom link and, and you're welcome to join us. And I know it's. It's hard not to get stressed, but you have to really let it go. And uh, you just have to let the stress go and get the help and and relax and, and deal with it. Go to your medical appointments, take your take your pharmacy medicines. And, and that's another thing. I have so many medicines. Oh, sometimes <laughs> you it's have hard to, to
0: manage.
1: It's very hard to manage. So, you, you know. Just do your best, but don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. You
0: know, I love that. That was like so many pieces of advice in one. It's find community, get involved, get off the couch, you know, uh, and and follow your doctor's advice and and don't give up hope. I love all of that.
1: Yeah, you have to. You have to. And you have to be your own advocate. If you like the doctor that gave me the year to live, fire. He was fired. And if you're not comfortable with that person, get rid of them. And yeah. find another one, so so that's I'm comfortable with every person it's my team. I can't tell you how much I love the nurses they, they're great they' just all wonderful. the people who give me the the blood tests the uh, medical assistance. God bless all of you so
0: man anyway. you are you are a very positive person. I love your energy I, I'm wondering as well. Um, you know, you mentioned Mr. Peanut in there, but three things in your life that give you unbridled joy that you're unwilling to compromise on. And these can be, you know, um, indulgences, favorite comfort activities. But where do you turn when you want to light yourself up?
1: Well, Mr. Peanut.
0: <laughs> I, yep, gotta, I knew uh, he'd uh, be on that
1: list. <laughs> my life became so much, uh, lot simpler since I've been. I guess terminally ill. So it's really changed my life. So a lot of the things I used to like to do, I really, I really can't do. So, so when I go to the dog park and meet my friends at the dog park, that's my outlet. I mean, is it, yeah, for me, that's something great when we go out to dinner with friends and, and you know, we social distance and things like this because I have to be careful and uh you know, my life really has really turned so much since I've been since I've been uh, sick. For, but I can't. I like my cruise ships, but due to the COVID, I can't do it right now. So I have a bucket list. I'm going to go to Ireland. So Ireland's on my mm-hmm. list. The Alaskan cruise is on my list. And once I get rid of those two off my bucket list, I'm going to put a couple of more things on there. Yeah. But I've been checking off my bucket list. The COVID's put a damper on my uh, um, on my bucket list party, but uh, yeah. you know I have more to go, so I, I will look forward. Yeah. So my life has changed. So it's I can't go to a Yankee game or a Met game or.
0: But a you modeling. can watch them on TV.
1: I could watch them on TV, but I try. I really try not to watch too much TV anymore because yeah. I can't get in the habit of sitting there, and uh, because it could get very habit forming. Yeah. the remote control sitting there and you try to feel sorry for yourself then you're in real trouble so
0: yeah absolutely well and that's another I guess uh you know piece of wisdom for people tuning into this episode like the sooner we get through COVID the sooner Tom can get back on his bucket list and the sooner he can get back on his cruises so like if we all mask up And take the necessary precautions to prevent the spread of COVID and take more responsibility for our actions that way. um, Then the sooner Tom can get on with living his life, which he still has much to live. So um, a lot of
1: stuff I learned. I have so much more stuff to do and I have to get a booster shot now. My oncologist told me the other day he wants me to get the booster shot for the COVID and my other doctor said you have to wait till eight months after your last one, but the oncologist said no because of your weakened immune system. I want okay. you to get it sooner than later. Oh. So, yeah, it, it help the other people out. Wear a mask. Wear a mask, please. It's such
0: a simple thing to do.
1: Yeah, if you sneeze, the mask is going to hold it in the droplet. I mean, I'm not a doctor. I, I don't pretend to be one, but please, just wear a mask. You know, you have elderly people out there. You have you know, people with invisible conditions. Yeah, you, know, you know, you don't know who they are, so just. And you have no
0: idea what people have been through, either.
1: Absolutely not. Absolutely yeah. not.
0: What What is your ask? Because aside from asking people to mask, what What would your ask be for listeners today? What can they do to support you and your community in your ongoing work?
1: <clears throat> well, Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation. Once again, very important to me, and they are such a great group of people. Uh, it's bringing you so much medical advice. I run the support group here. Mm-hmm. I've had three, three years of, in, involved in it. I've had 22 people pass away. Wow. And it's like, you know, it's like, wow, wow. Uh, so you see a lot of that here. And sometimes it gets overwhelming. Uh, for me, you know, you go, wow, I'm afraid that sometimes you're afraid to get friend, too friendly with people. That's but that's life it's life so
0: but i guess that means your ask is pay attention and and learn about these conditions and and get involved if if you are living with pulmonary fibrosis get involved with pff.org and, and yes absolutely and, and if
1: people could donate to them uh you, you know they're always probably looking for financial assistance but just awareness hey we're out here we're helping these people they do so much good for you know they're sending out newsletters and so if you have this disease oh isn't it great that they're sending you all this breaking information on pulmonary fibrosis 50,000 people a year get diagnosed with pulmonary fibrosis here wow. 50,000 it's not that much with you know so it's like one of these diseases that goes under the radar and there are 250,000 people in america living with it so fifty thousand a year and two hundred and fifty thousand living with it, you do the math. And but they're here to help you. So we appreciate any help that you could give the PFF or you know. And they're here to help you. They're here to help you. So.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to just one last time swing back because when this episode airs, um, it will be just a few days after the twentieth anniversary of nine eleven. Wow. And, and yeah, and I I wonder. What are your thoughts as you look back on that day? We all have memories, but you were there at Ground Zero. Can you take us back to the events you experienced that day? What are your feelings as we we celebrate this 20th anniversary or memorialize it?
1: It's, wow. I'm going to tell you, it, it, it was, we were just dealing with so many things that day and the days after. Uh, we had desperate family members. We had to say we had to set up DNA testing sites. So we had to have family members bringing toothbrushes, underwear, uh, you know, yeah, I, but this is a reality. This is what we had to deal with. And, uh, you know, people begging you, have you seen, have you heard from, uh, I at one point had to make a list of, uh, injured and dead police officers mm-hmm. who was in what hospital and, uh, there was a widow, I'm not even going to mention his name, but I, the wife called me that day, and I knew she was going to call. What happened, he went to Beekman Downtown Hospital, he got injured when the first hour He went to the emergency room, he went back out, he went into the building, and he died in the building. But they had him at Beekman Emergency Hospital, so we were able to find that out, and his co-workers were calling our detective division, trying to locate him. And, uh, you know, we had him there. And I said, just because we have him there, don't get your hopes up too high. You, you know, we had people go to the hospital, check, couldn't find him. And it turned out he did go back in. Yes, And I had the wife, could you please find my husband? And, uh, that, you don't want to take that phone call. It lives with you. Yeah. You know, it lives with you forever. The going down to ground zero. A couple of years ago, I was doing a PFF um, awareness thing and I went to ground zero. And it was I like, I saw rip- that
0: video. Yeah.
1: yeah. It was like, rip- there was a Burger King there. Yeah. And that Burger King is still there today. And it was our temporary headquarters. And I'll never, you know, after a while, you went in. And the fountain drinks worked. And I drank so, because we were out there and it was smoky. All we had were like one of these masks. This is, is what they mask. gave you basically. Yeah. But nobody was expecting it. So I'm not going to get into that. But it brings back to this. Looking at that and if you look at that Burger King it looked like a bomb hit it, and that was our office. That was our temporary headquarter office. And You know, just stupid things. It was a coffee cart there. You ever see the coffee cart? They sell coffee and bagels in the streets of New York. Yeah. Somebody had a coffee cart right on that corner, a little bit past Burger King. And I remember seeing that there. And he abandoned his cart. And for months going there, you would see the, the bagels were still there. The coffee cups were still there. It was all covered in dust. I always wondered, whatever happened to that guy? Who was running that coffee cart? Yeah, you know, it was just oh man, man. We hope he made it. Oh yeah, hope he made it. Hope he made it. And uh, and just so many people that are sick and dying right now. I have uh, one friend that lives not too far from me, and he's got a real serious stage four cancer. He's fighting it. And another friend, he just got pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, he's got an eleven-year-old and a twelve-year-old, and, and a wife, and uh, you know his world is is rocked. You just take a look. There's somebody else with your same cancer out there that's had it for eight years and is living a life. Find them. You know, get your medical care. That that's it. Working the uh, the Staten Island landfill that was a nightmare. It was a garbage dump. They put all that stuff in. And I was there where i i used used to do the midnight there. so there were i think it were like ten twelve hour shift and three four o'clock in the morning it started raining and we're in the landfill and we're shifting through this stuff, and the ground started bubbling because it's in a landfill so mm. and gases started coming up and I thought, what that what is this? I guess it's methane gas because it's a uh, it was a landfill and it dumped and, uh You know, it's just like a bad, it was like a bad, bad dream. And I would have the uh, DOA notification log. So when the medical examiner's office called up and they got a hit, you you know, they were able to match a body part to something in the DNA database. We would have to put it in the log and do the death notification or send somebody to do the death notification. And it's just it very rough times, very rough times. Yeah. So, you know, it it remembered, I'll never forget it. Uh it, you know, and, and being a cop, uh are, you know and don't let's not forget there were firemen, there were MTA transit authority workers that were fixing the tracks there getting sick, sanitation workers getting sick, Con Edison Electrical Company workers getting sick, school kids from Stuyvesant and High School getting sick people going to work, people at head shops, they're all getting sick. Uh, So, you know, it's not just me or, you know, so it's not all about me. I was not a hero at all. You know, the bell rang. We want to work. Everybody wants to work. Uh, You know, I'm still standing here. Uh, Most of a lot of my friends are dead now from this. And, uh, you know, we died early deaths that, you know, basically I was killed that day, You, you know, not easy dealing with this disease it's it's a very big struggle and uh uh for five years it, it just let's see to that february 2016 is the day my life changed and it was from 9-11 and uh you know it brings back so many memories so but every time i take a breath out of this machine i i remember some it, it, i wish you would think just this breathing from this hose. It's hard work. <laughs> so it's hard. And it brings back memories that, hey, I should be having to do this right now. I should be able to, I should still be working, uh, doing some sort of, you know, responsible job for a few more years and retiring probably like in five years from now, getting to live my golden years. But I am not getting that chance, so... Uh, yeah, you know, but I am living my life now. I'm living it to the best. Of life, so
0: well, and and I'm going to be in your corner, rooting for you to to make it to those golden years as well. I, I was yeah. wondering how how can listeners work to continue the legacy of those we lost twenty years ago, and and those who like you work to save them.
1: Boy, that's a good question. I don't know. Just you know. If you have anybody out there, they may have problems with the police department. Thank a cop. Nothing better than thank you. You know, somebody's, even though not everybody's perfect, you know, not everybody is perfect. But if you see a cop in uniform, say thank you. Uh, If you see a fireman, thank you. If you see a paramedic, thank you. Thank you for paramedics. Thank God, EMS workers. Say thank you. It's, uh, it's, it's really God's work. You know, we don't make much money as civil servants. So if people think, oh, we're, you know, like, uh, hit the gravy train. You know, it's God's work. You know, a lot of us could have done other careers that made a lot more money and, uh, went into that profession. And it really is helping people. So they, even though some people, they may get a ticket or something and really get pissed off and, but thank the cop, thank the fireman, thank the any civil service worker that's out there to help you. A school crossing guard, thank them. You know, hey, thanks a lot. You know, you see an elderly person doing the school, they have them here. And they stand out with the stop. Thank you very much. It's nice of you to do that. And uh, that's that's what else could I say? You know, nine eleven is uh, it's a day I'm never going to forget. And it appears a lot of people are forgetting uh, about that day. And if you were in New Yorker living at that time by New York, you remember seeing the flags up, uh, the people clapping when the firemen and the police were leaving the pile. We would have restaurants bring food into the police station because they knew we were working like crazy hours with no days off. And they bring food in. And, they donated socks and boots and shirts and toothbrushes and toothpaste, and and those we were one. We were a community. Everybody was looking out for each other, and that's New what York
0: is. has never been better. I I honestly think those days yes. after 9-11. New York, yeah. we came together was, like you wouldn't believe.
1: It really, really was. It really was, and even other cities, they sent their cops uh, and firemen into the city to help us out. We had cops. I was looking at police cars from other states. They were answering police radio runs in New York City because we were so shorthanded. We had, you know, stuff was still stuff was going on that needed attention. And uh, what the city really came, the whole world came together. then, But not just the city, the whole world came together. And, you know, we should be able to, I don't know, it's wow. Yeah. It's, it seems like it's a crazy world right now, and hopefully it could fix itself. But uh, I, I wish it could come, come together like after 9-11 again. Yeah. But don't forget the World Trade Center, 9-11. Uh, Never yeah. forget. So many stories, so many people, so many lives that affected. Uh, so don't forget it. Yeah. That's all I could say.
0: <laughs> I think that's beautifully said. I've got one last question for you, Tom, and that's what's next. What's next in your your health journey? I know there's talk of maybe some post-COVID lung transplants and uh, what's next in your advocacy work as well?
1: Advocacy work. I'm going to continue doing the, uh, the meetings here as long as I could. And we're going to try to get the online going as best as we could. Uh, I'll still be an ambassador as long as they'll have me, uh, you know, if they want me to continue being their ambassador, I'm here for them. Uh, you know, I'm always willing to tell my story to anybody who wants to listen. You want to hear about this? I'll, uh, I'll talk to you about it. And uh, as for, you know, this COVID is really thrown, uh, it's created a big, you know, living with this disease has created tremendous Tremendous hurdles for a lung transplant, but uh, I'm still thinking about it, too. It's uh, just because I might be able to get one doesn't mean that's a whole nother topic in itself. Uh, That's a whole nother living with a terminal disease. It's just really transferring it. Uh, You know, it's about the same time frame of expected life expectancy. Uh, so you know I would say the best time to get my lung transplant is right about when these babies are going to give up on me mm. and I don't think they're ready to give up on me yet so uh, that's because you're then, not
0: ready to give up yet
1: I'm not ready to give up I got stuff to do I, but I have so much stuff to do and I, and I am definitely getting to Ireland and I'm going to get on that Alaska cruise uh, and then then we'll talk about that. But uh, (laughs) but I'm always going to have something ahead of me, something planned. Yeah. uh, I'm just going to keep living. Just keep living. uh, It's the best as I could. You know what I mean? So that's what I'm going to do.
0: Tom Fry, you're my hero. You may not think you are a hero. You are my hero. Um, I'm so honored to have had you on the show. I'm going to get emotional again. (laughs) But I, I'm so honored to have had you on the show today. Um, you are a helper. And, uh, and man, we are lucky to have had you on 9-11 and to have you now. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to share before I let you go as well?
1: Well, you being in New Yorker, I, I tell you, isn't it amazing that you grew up right around the corner from where I work? And we went I, to Estadale. across the
0: street, not even around yeah, the across corner, his, across the yeah. street.
1: I went to first grade down the block at Epiphany Grammar School, the church. I was baptized there. Yeah. Born
0: in St. Vincent's left.
1: Hospital. Well and,
0: well, and you mentioning also that you had a beat on the Upper West Side because I went to high school up at Trevor Day on the oh, Upper
1: West. What, what street was that?
0: 88th and Central Park West.
1: Yes, I remember that. Sure. I was in that school all the time. I was in that school. all the time.
0: I have a feeling we've crossed paths before. Absolutely. They used to the first be broken time.
1: into quite a bit there.
0: Okay, I never knew about
1: that. <laughs> yeah, they used to have, yeah, yeah. They had some wow. like tutors back in the day and stuff stolen. Wow. Eight
0: oh, yeah, because we had a laptop program that was probably. Yes, my. you did. Yeah. And
1: you know, you were there, and there was another fancy private school down the block, one of the eighty eighth, eighty ninth. Yes, street.
0: I'm trying a to A lot remember. of diplomats'
1: kids went there.
0: Yeah, there were. There was another. It was, and I remember we had like a sports rivalry with them, and I was always like, "Oh, they're the fancy ones." <laughs> yeah,
1: and on ninety first Street was the the real bait shots. I mean, uh, what, what was it? Oh, 91st, between, right well, there, off of Columbia.
0: There was collegiate. So, yeah.
1: Uh huh.
0: And then there was also there was another um all boys school um and the, I mean the more of the the fancy ones were on the east side, but we had sports rivals uh, rivalries with all of them. Right, Not that right, we right. were very good with the sports. We were more of an arts school. Um, but yeah, collegiate was one of our big rivals, but also like Dalton and um yeah. oh all the all the prep schools and um yeah there. A lot of them, actually, all in that area. And all of my very close friends grew up sort of around 86 in Amsterdam and Columbus and grew and, up in that area. And you,
1: you remember JFK Jr.? He lived on 91st Street in Central Park West. Before I, it was cool. Before it was cool. <laughs> oh, but I, I can probably tell you so well. But I used to run into JFK Jr. all the time. We knew each other. He would ride yeah. his bike and all that kind of stuff. He would walk around the neighborhood. And, uh, yeah, he lived on 91st Street, yeah.
0: That's amazing. So, what yeah. what a like! I have to say, the life you've lived so far, Tom, has been incredibly rich. And and oh,
1: it's, I would you know I I I'd do it all over again if I could. So I you know I <laughs> I used to do all the movie premieres in New York City too at one time. Oh, so I wow. I told you I worked for the movie theater company I owned the Angelic City cinemas. Oh,
0: fabulous! Uh,
1: so I worked for a guy. And he was involved in the movie theater. So we did all the movie premieres, red carpet, security, spotlights. So we used to know all the movie stars, uh, Jack McClay. I mean, Robin Williams, a birdcage. We used to do all those premieres. And do you yeah, do, um,
0: I, I'm wondering, do you, do you use social media at all?
1: I do. I do a little bit, yeah.
0: Because there's, do you know Humans of New York?
1: No, humans are Oh
0: my goodness, Tom, this is going to change your life. So there's a guy and he goes around New York. He's a photographer. He started just going around New York and he's now also done things all over the world, but based in New York. And he takes photos of people and he shares their stories. So often you get some real New York characters. Like only last week, he featured Ray from Ray's candy store in Alphabet City. Um, you know, <laughs> the like the and, egg
1: creams, there,
0: yeah. and there. oh, yeah. And my dad <laughs> still makes me egg creams. I've had them since I was a kid, thanks to my I father who grew up in Flatbush. Job. So, so Ray's, I had no idea about his story, but humans of New York, they featured his story. I had no idea that he'd come from Iran and and that he basically took on the name. I mean, it is only in New York. Um, but there are stories like that.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: All, stories like that all the time but humans humans of new york is like the feed on instagram and they have a website and he's released a number of books but i feel like you would love that because you love those new york stories and these. Oh, they're great stories. they're
1: great they're great there's yeah. so many stories in new york old characters i used to run into larry king uh oh. comedians and I, I had Mary Tyler Moore get mad at me one day.
0: <laughs> of all people, Mary Tyler Moore, she seems uh, so nice. It was,
1: it was over a bird's nest uh, <laughs> was on the Upper East Side, and there was a bird's nest that made a nest on our co-op. It was in the 80s on Fifth Avenue. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> so the Mary Tyler Moore was trying to sell a co-op, and Paula Zahn, remember her? She was a news anchor. Yeah. So what happened was they wanted the, the next removed. But Mary Tyler Moore tried to sell a co-op, and the co-op board wouldn't let it go through. So she was pissed at Paula Zahn's husband, who was <laughs> calling a board. Anyway, it became such... I get a case on it, because one of the... There's press, and they're like hounding uh, oh, of
0: Paula Zahn.
1: So, yeah, it's good. So... They were stalking. She had a kid who was a little autistic and the camera the news guy, he was like stalking the kid. I finally had to arrest him. You know, he was warned and he uh, got arrested and uh, Barry Tyler Moore wanted to make bail for him. <laughs> because she was pissed off at Paula Zahn's <laughs> husband.
0: <laughs>
1: and wouldn't that's let fabulous. You wouldn't let the of co-op go through.
0: You truly can't make this stuff up. It's no, like... And she's
1: calling me up, the, the, the sergeant downstairs. The detective Mary Tunnel Moore is here. She wants to post bail for
0: me. <laughs> <laughs> so Oh, that's she's fabulous. Because
1: I'm telling her I can't... You have to... There's no bail here. You have to wait till the guy goes downtown. And, and you know, it's just so many crazy story remember, remember radio man
0: oh radio- god oh god yes he i remember was- him well
1: okay radio man so we're doing the the movie premiere for birdcage and uh that girl who was that girl uh, in the
0: birdcage
1: no no but she went to the who played in that girl uh i forget the name.
0: i don't know i, I don't forget know. the
1: actress's name but robin williams limousine is there and they're coming at us of uh not Studio 54. It's another club. They had the Birdcage premiere on the Sh- Roseland. They're coming mm. out of Roseland. They're all getting into the limousine. And there's Radio Man. He's sneaking into the limousine. So I had to grab um, Radio Man. Get out of the car. But he was probably like, oh, I'm, I'm
0: friends of- with Robin. That girl, that girl.
1: He's going, hey, fat girl. Hey, fat girl. Oh. Get out of here, will you? Uh, But it was funny. It was hysterical. But yeah, Robin Williams was laughing. We were all laughing. We're having a good time. You're,
0: you're reminding me as well. Cause when I was a kid, we had an incident where my grandfather, who was the cop, was <laughs> visiting us from Australia and staying with us. So I, I lived in Quaker Ridge, that building on the corner of 21st and 3rd.
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I grew up
0: on the 18th floor wow. and, um, so, so like, out from one of our balconies, we could see the 13th Precinct all the time and the blimpy that used to be on the corner there. Oh,
1: you said I was going to that blimpy since I was a kid. Oh, that blimpy was fabulous. Point. And, and Subway piz-
0: does not compare.
1: <laughs> yeah, the pizzeria down the block, and then they had yep. the candy store. Remember, yes. that's not there anymore. The oh. No.
0: Candy- yeah, that's right. I heard that that, like... Well, I've been back. I went back a few years ago in 2019, right before COVID happened. I went back mm-hmm. and, um, we are friendly with the people who bought the apartment for my parents. Um, and so we were able to like go and see, but they've now built up on top of that building on the corner. They've built up. And mm-hmm. so it's kind of awful because we used to have these sweeping views. My dad watched the towers go down from our living room. Uh- um, but, uh, but I remember my granddad was visiting. And uh, my parents were out for dinner one evening um, and I was with a babysitter and we got this phone call from someone saying, you know, my parents are Helen and Howard Friedman saying Helen and Howard Friedman have been in a, a, a car accident um, and something about meeting the person or whatever. And luckily my babysitter thought it was really suspicious. And so she called my parents and they were fine. And, um, my granddad had the wherewithal to go down to the 13th precinct, um, later that evening. And he told them what had happened. And apparently at the time there had been someone trying to scam people and was going through the phone book and he, and whoever he spoke to said, oh, he must've gotten to F. (laughs) <laughs>
1: oh that, that point, yeah that's an old scam yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: yeah 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 well it was really shocking because at the time i was alone with my babysitter and she was like um i just got this really weird phone call like she was trying to sort of not inform me fully but like i got a sense of what was going on and i freaked out and oh it was such a drama but my granddad god bless him because he had been he, he was the assistant commissioner of police in melbourne
1: wow, so wow.
0: he loved cops Cops were his life yeah. and he he started as a mounted policeman, you know, back in the day. Yeah. And um, so he went down to the 13th precinct and he ended up being sort of friendly with some of the guys over there and, and yeah, just kind of gorgeous. It was always great for me because I was always around cops growing up because you were on my block. So the cadets were always around. And so I've never felt it had noted, to be the safest
1: know. community in New York city there. Yeah. And now the police academy in the uh, it's in the, The Queens now. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's the lab, the police lab now, the police academy. Hey, did you have keys to Gramercy
0: Park? We never did, but my dad was briefly a member of the Players Club, and so I think we got to go in once. He got keys from them once, and we got to go in. But did you ever get to go in?
1: Well, the lady that runs, she's the, I I forget her title. Oh, yeah. Facebook, she's wonderful she was a big advocate of the police and the 13th oh, precinct. she loved the emergency service guys the guys in the the big truck she's still there she's still there yeah
0: she's still she, there
1: yeah i forget her name uh my one, mom
0: actually was talking about her the other day and i she yeah. remembers all the names i i she, don't know <laughs> she's a
1: key keeper of gramercy park yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. oh wow the blimpy and the diner on the corner what was it i called? love that diner um Adri- not adriatic uh Lyric, 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 the
0: lyric diner, lyric
1: restaurant. Yeah, yeah,
0: yes. When I was Uh, in the
1: police academy, I tried to date a waitress in there. Her name was Cookie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. I used to go there like when I had a real hankering for diner food. I was uh, like, thank God we always had the lyric. I could always just pop over and. You know, get a grilled tomato soup or something and and just get all that comfort food. But of course, my dad was making me egg creams at home anyway. So I have egg (laughs) creams.
1: And you had Gramercy bakery downstairs.
0: Yeah. Oh, it was such a great spot to grow up. And it was funny because by the time I got to high school, my friends were uptown. And when I tell them to come visit me downtown, they'd all be like, "Ugh, there's nothing downtown, downtown. And I'd be like, are you kidding me? Like, everything is here. Yeah, Um, yeah. I loved it. I really, really loved growing up there and I do miss it. I miss it a lot. But my dad keeps in touch with some of the old guys from the building and they sent him photos periodically. Yeah, it's nice. It's really That's nice. That's great. And
1: you gotta go if you could get the keys to the park.
0: I know. Well maybe Well, was- I've got a cousin who's in the players' club now, so maybe I could get keys through him one day. Oh, at Christmas time,
1: time <laughs> right? Christmas time. And,
0: yeah. It was always gorgeous. My mum used to always take all my all our like, you know, Christmas card photos there <laughs> in front of the snowy park well tom i've got to run because i got to get to an appointment but I, I can't thank you enough for all your time today
1: hey great talking let's do this again next year i'd love there, to we'll hey again you better still be here
0: look uh if you want to get in touch with me directly to send me any of those links as well oh, let me sure. give you my email address i can send it in the chat here okay go ahead
1: um
0: on invisiblepod at gmail.com. That's my email. So um please feel free to send me any relevant links there. And like just keep in touch. I want to know what's going on with you. And if there's, you know, at this point, like I know your story, you consider me a friend now, I hope. So um, oh, I, if there's anything. What I did you do... send you
1: eat at Essa Bagels? I use it. Yeah. Well, you know it's inside this in town, Essa Bagels now. It's on First Avenue. They moved. It's on First Avenue and Eighteenth. Wait, they're
0: not on Second and Twenty Second anymore.
1: No, they used to be on Twenty Second and First on the corner. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, Twenty they Second and First. The, they lost the lease, and uh, another bagel store tried to. They took it over, but you can't compare to Essa Bagel. There's no way. There is no comparison. And then that pick a bagel. Yeah,
0: They opened on Third. Yeah,
1: yeah, Essa Bagel was the best. You couldn't, the best, you
0: couldn't, Tom. Yeah. It, email me your address. I want to send you some Essa bagels. <laughs>
1: Oh
0: <laughs> as a so thank you for today.
1: Hey, it was great talking. You get you going too. and we'll talk again soon. Please, okay?
0: please reach out to me. I would love to stay in touch. And if there's anything I can do to help you with any of the um, pulmonary fibrosis foundation initiatives, my newsletter is always open to you, as is my social media. So please okay. don't ever Just, hesitate.
1: Whatever you can put out about them, great yeah. crew, great bunch. They do a lot of good.
0: Yeah. Okay. Awesome, yeah. Tom. Um, You're the best. Thank you for your service. Thank you for being a wonderful human. And you better stick around.
1: I am. Or
0: else.
1: I'm like a rusty old penny. (laughs) I'll talk to you later.
0: All right. Talk to you soon, Tom. Bye. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at UninvisiblePod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.